I still think he might be the best candidate. This is a glorified ambassador role, I think. I do know why I am opting for one particular candidate. How do you actually think you can successfully win a contest against Michael G. Higgins? Welcome to The Candidate, the Journal.ie's in-depth look at who's running in the presidential campaign. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and I've sat down with each hopeful to get a closer look at who they are and what they want to do as president. I would like to think that in all areas of public life, if anybody steps forward, that the first thing we would do is not take a pot shot at them in terms of who do you think you are standing for public office. This episode of The Candidate features Sean Gallagher and I'm joined in DRT Angel Street studio by our reporter Gronje Lee A, who's going to remind us a little bit about his background. Well, he's a millionaire business investor and TV personality, I suppose is the short answer. But Gallagher's roots are actually quite uh, different from that. He was born in Monaghan Town. He grew up in Ballyhays, County Cavan. It's difficult to sum up Gallagher's career. He's quite a long CV. He went to Chagask Agricultural College and has a diploma in youth work and community development from Maynooth. He's worked for the Youth Council of Ireland, the Department of Health, the Loud County Enterprise Board, and he's served on a number of state boards as well, including one on North-South Trade. He also did a stint as a political advisor for the Fianna Fáil Minister for Health during the early 1990s, Rory O'Hanlon. So with all of that, how the hell did he end up on Dragon's Den? Uh, In 2000, Gallagher set up a company that provides homes with broadband heating or alarm systems. Just to give a quick snapshot of of the business, how successful the business was, in two years, the company turnover increased from 1 million to 7 million. So that is basically what led him to RTE's Dragon's Den. And he was on that show from 2009 to 2011. Among some of the businesses that he backed were tiered gardening shells, a tool that allows you to bleed an oil boiler, chocolate covered health snacks and a website for advertising pedigree cattle. Okay, Uh, so he was a president. He was on Dragon's Den then right up until the presidential election that he contested last time out. He was and he was running against six other candidates, including Michael D. Higgins. He gathered a lot of support during that election as well through focusing on Irish businesses and job creation, which was indicative of the mood of the electorate at that time. And it resonated with a lot of people. But he obviously didn't win in the end. No, and Tweetgate is credited for that by many analysts, Gallagher included. We have an explainer on this on the site, but basically what happened was that Gallagher and other candidates were taking part in the last live TV debate of the election on Ortiz primetime. Gallagher was responding to allegations from the Sinn Féin candidate, the late Martin McGuinness, that he'd collected a cheque for 5000 for a Fianna Fáil fundraiser. Presenter Pat Kenny then read out a tweet from an account which was claiming to be linked to Martin McGuinness. But the tweet turned out to be false. And Orti apologised to Gallagher in 2017 for that, paid him substantial damages uh, in and out of court settlement and investigated the incident. Gallagher's response to that tweet is considered to have lost him his substantial lead, which was at 40% at one point, according to some polls. And he said recently in this campaign that he let himself down that night. And yeah, he said that it took him about a year and a half to actually get over the hurt um, and actually losing that campaign. He was obviously doing well, focusing on business and jobs during that campaign. Is he doing the same again this time out? He is focusing on businesses and jobs again this time around, but with a bit of a twist. He's emphasising it in the context of the uncertainty Brexit is going to cause and how it's important to protect businesses and support them and protect jobs as well. Um, He also said recently that he wants to see United Ireland in his lifetime. And that's probably as political as Gallagher gets. 
Great. Thanks very much, Grania. This actually isn't my first time interviewing Sean Gallagher. I did so for thejournal.ie back in 2011. So I'm excited to meet him again. Now, the morning I sat down with Sean Gallagher was just after the controversial remarks about the traveller community were made by Peter Casey. He spoke about having sympathy with people who live next to halting sites and talked about the Tipperary family who were looking for housing solutions recently. I asked Sean for his initial comments and reaction. I think it's one of the, the challenges. Uh, firstly, I, 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 I abhor Peter's comments. I think they're, they're ill-informed and and maybe populist. I understand sometimes why people have a challenge uh, with the traveling community, but the in 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 the era, in the mid eighties when I studied professional youth work, uh, I I spent a time after that working with the traveling community in Navan, and I got to understand the challenges that they face, and they're significant challenges. Uh, but they are an ethnic group, and they're a group that have worked incredibly hard. In fact, on my professional youth work course in Maynooth, the first traveller to ever go to third level college was there, a young man called Tom McCann. And I would have come from, you know, traditional uh, thinking of not having been exposed to the travelling community way of life and uh, would have come from a typical settled, settled person's mindset. Um, but Thomas McCann didn't lecture us. He just explained the lifestyle. He explained the history and the tradition and he, uh, he explained the challenges that they had. And ironically, when I went to, to work with the travelling community in Navan, the Navan Travellers Project, Michael McDonough and his wife Nell, who ran that, Michael became the second ever traveller to go to third level to do the very same course that I had done. So there's a piece of misunderstanding and that has to be about raising awareness and consciousness. And in every aspect, whether it's young people or, or, or whether it's different ethnic groups, there are often, often minorities who, who um, I think, bring a negative response uh, to the whole cohort. And I think Peter has fallen into that. And I think that's unfortunate because I can tell you this, the future of the traveling community is about recognizing their tradition and respecting that. And if you don't, if you don't go to that position initially, you can't understand it and then you can't move forward. Do you think there's anything you could do as president? You talked there about understanding that traditional Mm. mindset and even maybe coming from it yourself at a time. Is there anything as as president that can be done? As you said, they are an ethnic community. They are very much part of our culture. Mm. How can a president represent them so that that traditional mindset isn't there anymore? Because obviously no one has done it so far. I think it's, I think it's about raising consciousness. And, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer that once you know something, you can't unknow it. I will never look at the traveling community uh, like I would have traditionally because I now know the challenges they face. And I know the great work that their own leaders, and I think this is what's important. It's great to see so many travelers coming through education because that's the foundation for them, you know, being their own advocates. And, and they're incredibly passionate and incredibly articulate. So I think it's about recognizing, and as president, I would like to recognize the great work that they have done themselves as a community to organize, to educate, and to advocate. And I think then there's a a job of work to um, educate the settled community, the wider community, about the challenges faced by, by travelers. And then it's about working together, and it's about meeting 
groups like the traveling community where they're at, not with our mindset. We have to change our mindset to see how can we help them fit in with, with, with our way of life, holding on to their traditions, but also making sure that their children get an education and there is housing put in place and not taking isolated cases to make a sensational point. On the role of the president, and obviously you mentioned a couple of things that you'd like to do in with that remit in in that area. But there's a lot of things you have to do. You have to do the state dinners. You have to you know meet and greet people. You you have to uh, throw the parties in the in the orus. Is there any part of the job um, that you don't want to do that you want to maybe change? No, I think I think the role is sufficiently diverse, and it's also. there's huge scope I think to expand you know with imagination other areas that the presidency can focus on outside of the protector of the constitution and outside of those ceremonial roles that you mentioned I I think there are priorities that any person and any candidate to the presidency could bring based on their own life experience I look at the Mary, Mary McAleese and she was an inspiration because she came from the north and so her focus was in trying to do something during her presidency to advance you know, her understanding and help others, you know, build relationships as well. And the same with Mary Robinson when she was advancing the role of women uh, in society and in public life. For me, there are a number of key areas that I would like to, to, to bring the presidency, uh, wrap the presidency around these issues and, and bring them to the fore. And one of those is the area of, of disabilities. But I call it more a focus on our abilities rather than our disabilities. So I grew up visually impaired. So my challenge going to school was not like others. My overwhelming abiding uh, memory of school in primary school was one of fear because I couldn't see the blackboard no matter how close I sat to it. Can you explain just for listeners Mm. what that visual impairment in more detail, just so I don't think everybody is actually aware that this was something that you dealt with growing up? Yeah, and I know sometimes people see me and when they particularly see me photographed outside or filmed outside, they'll often see my eyes squinting. And sometimes they will say to me, Sean, that's not your, your normal happy, jolly self. Where did you go? we haven't seen and so bright light makes me squint and it's very painful because so when I was growing up I, I was born with what's called congenital cataracts so that means people would be familiar with older people get cataracts over their eyes <clears throat> but when I was born I was born with them and unfortunately my little two year old has them as well so that's that's why it's it's uh, uh, there's it's incumbent on me to try and sort of change people's perceptions so that she doesn't have to grow up the same challenges that I grew up with so when I was trying to read the blackboard, and back then teachers would typically, you know, talk, and but they would write on the blackboard whatever they were saying. This is before you had whiteboards and iPads. And so because I couldn't write down anything, I had to learn how to memorize and how to listen attentively to the teacher and write it down. My greatest fear, though, is at the end, when everybody went out for their break at lunchtime and played in the ground, in the playgrounds, I would listen to those voices through the window, open window, while I was trying to transcribe what was on the blackboard my fear being the teacher would come in and wipe the blackboard before class would begin again and I would lose all of that. And it was a time when I didn't have the confidence to say to my other classmates, you know, can I borrow your copybook tonight? Because did you know there was something wrong? I did, of course. And I mean, I challenged with that. I was really challenged. But it's a bit like it, nowadays you would have a psychologist, educational psychologist who would intervene and put supports. There's more technology available. But back then that just wasn't understood and everybody was doing their, the best they could. But it did have an impact on me in terms of confidence. 
and it took years and years and years. And then when I got older, you know, I got surgery, uh, but the, the upside was that my sight improved, but the downside was that I tore the, the, the iris, the blue part of my eye, which meant that light gets in everywhere now. And that's why sometimes I can't, I, if I look a bit austere, you know, or I wear sunglasses. So growing up as a teenager, I, I, I used to forego wearing sunglasses because the rest of the lads would slag me saying, ah, oh, Mr. Super Cool. And so I endured that for a while. So one of my big passions now is to put disability front and centre. We have nearly 700,000 people in Ireland with some level of a disability. If we all live old enough, we'll all have a disability. What I'd love to do, Sinead, is in seven years looking back, if I could change the public's perception towards those with a disability so that when people see someone with a disability, they look way beyond the disability and look for the ability in that person. And if I could empower, even by my own example, uh, but to working with others to help people really who have a disability to step forward in the knowledge that they have a right to live their life to the best of their potential, whatever their level of ability. And thirdly, it would be astounding that in seven years' time, if Ireland could be a role model about how we build an inclusive society for those with disabilities. That's one of the key areas. You spoke about this recently on on Morning Ireland and I noticed um, campaigner Susie Byrne, who's obviously very active in this area, had some questions for you. So I was just going to put some of them to you um, because she said lots of disabled people have been wondering um, about your activism over the last seven years. she said that Sean is about the disabled superperson overcoming themselves um, and she wanted to know where do you stand on the cost of disability, the poverty disabled people face um, and the low paying discrimination of employers? I spent a number of years as the patron for an association for supported employment because no more than when I started in professional youth work and I was brought into professional youth work by seeing young people who had left the educational system and when I spoke to them the most important thing they said to me is that they never saw themselves going to college. They never saw themselves having a future. And therefore, they were always going to be trapped in disadvantaged and, and, and um, uh, situations. And so I always understood that at the heart of all of these uh, challenges was the root cause, which was education and employment. That is my understanding in terms of how to address all of these issues. The same... You said you were a patron there. What did yes. that mean? What, what was your day-to-day activity yeah. with them? And the same w- is with those who, who have a disability. The first thing we need to do is make sure that they get through an educational system that gives them the skills. And those skills may be different from those who don't have a disability. But it's also about employment. People who, uh, in times of high unemployment... Those who have a disability suffer worse because they just can't find employment. And so the Association for Supported Employment was creating opportunities with employers where we got those with a disability to shadow employers. We even had people shadowing the Taoiseach and the minister uh, at the time. And it was about getting people with a disability to be able to get into the workforce, to understand what it's like to to, to go to work, to, to be in that environment, but also that by placing somebody with a disability in the workforce, that those around them began to break down their own preconceptions that somebody had a did disability. Did they turn into jobs in the end? Some of them did, and, and, and I think there's so much more that needs to be done there, and that's why I'm, I want to lead this conversation, that we need to have proactive initiatives to get people into employment. Do you have them in the companies that you're involved in? Any that I have, yes. And I have, uh, what I'm doing now is my my role now in the businesses that I have is more a catalyst for supporting startups and and maintain, uh, helping sustain uh, growth companies. And for the last six years, I've been writing and promoting small and medium-sized businesses. That's my passion. It's about jobs, but it's also about sustainability. And do they have inclusive employment policies? 
policies? Most of them do. And I, 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 I raise it with, with many of them in terms of, you know. Do you uh, insure it? Deficit. Is there any way you can insure it? Do you do not, that? Not through my current role, no. And that's why I think, you know, everywhere I go, I'm happy to talk about disability. I'm passionate about making sure that we, we break down the, 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 the preconceptions because anybody you know, being in a wheelchair doesn't mean that you haven't great keyboard skills. Skills Having poor sight doesn't mean that you can't be really good at being creative or artistic or anything else. It's literally about understanding that disability is not outside of ourselves. It's part of who we is are. Is there any reason you don't insure it in the, in those, obviously you mentioned there's small and medium companies. Well, I'm, they're not my companies. Most of what I do now is, is I provide space for companies and I'm conscious of that. Um, I'm just conscious that people listening might want a concrete example. Obviously, you're going to go Go and do this. You want to do this in yeah. yours for seven years. Sure. I'm sure they're looking for. Okay, give me an example of when this happened under your remit, under your guidance over the past seven years. Obviously, um, precedent is the best way to to ensure something will happen going forward. Yeah, well, I suppose it's 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 to my time with the supported employment is is actively talking to employers. So, you know, ga- gathering employers around and asking them to bring people who have a disability into their work environment to help create opportunities, even if it's not a full time job initially, uh, but to create opportunities for people to come in even on a part time basis or uh, a job shadow, which was the big initiative, a job shadow initiative to get people who have a disability to shadow those in the workplace with the view that that might perhaps lead to a job. But that needs to be obviously the work of government as well. So we need to create much more concrete pro- programs um, for those, but but incentives, I think, too. And it, this is important. I mean, if there are adjustments that need to happen in a workplace, these incentives need to be there. So I think there's a job of work for government. Uh, I support the great work that all the dis- those uh, groups representing and advocating for disabilities. And I I think too as a president to shine a light on that and some people would be a little cynical about shining a light but I think it's back to what we were talking about earlier even with the travelling community once somebody shines a light on it once you know what the challenges are you can't unknow and then hopefully we could move people towards greater action Yeah well, you, you mentioned people being cynical there and I think that has been uh Part of this campaign that a lot of the public are incredibly cynical about the candidates, about that, the fact that we're even having a, a campaign to begin with. Um, that was very visible if you were following the Clareburn Live debate on Monday night. Um, did you watch it? I watched a, a part of it, yes, because I had a campaign team meeting because I was on Morning Ireland the next morning. Um, Who do you think won? I, I don't honestly know. I didn't catch all of it to see. I, and I think it's probably a challenge... I'm elections for the president, the role of president. I think there is a degree of cynicism, and I think that's sad. The last, uh, most of these debates are about you know taking pot shots at people and having an argument, and it's some sort of a dictatorial environment. In truth, it should be really getting to understand the candidates. Who are we? What's our driving force? It's not so much often in life I have found about what people do, but why we do things. People think I'm in business because it's about money. But my life is about, you know, growing up as a young person challenged. It was working as a professional youth worker. The solution is not in short-term interventions. They're important. The solution is creating an environment where everybody has an education and can find a job, or alternatively, we create jobs. And in doing so, we create the tax that addresses all the public services. So, now, you, so you didn't, so obviously you, you didn't go to the debate because Michael D. Higgins didn't. Do you regret that yeah. now that you didn't use that space to try and get some of these messages across? Uh, just to finish on the cynical piece, the cynical piece is I watched I watched the debate in 2011. I was part of the debate and I saw 
someone like Mary Davis stepping forward, who had given her life to the area of disability as it happened in special needs. My own wife, Trish's younger brother, Kevin, Kev's benefited greatly from special from Special Olympics. And she was vilified because she was on a few state boards. Today, we're trying to nominate and find increase the number of women on state boards. I think elections should be about celebrating people who step forward, whatever their skill set, if they have a vision that they want to put forward. With regard to the debates, in 2011, Michael D. Higgins and I participated in more than eight debates. He even sought an additional debate just between the two of us and to the exclusion of the other candidates. And I felt that that was unfair because he was seeking to get to become president. Now that he's president, he reduced the number of debates he was having uh, and uh, because he didn't want to naturally expose himself to too much questioning because he's he's now, you know, so far ahead in the polls. And I felt that it was unfair if all the candidates, and I've been through the 2011 election, if all the other candidates were lined up on a podium and uh, open to, yes, the opportunity to outline our vision, but open to scrutiny and questioning in every aspect of our lives. And yet one of the candidates, the one who was in poll position, wasn't. I thought that was unfair. And so I stated that, in the, that fairness and, and making promises uh, is important to me to keep those promises. And that's why I stood on that value. And I've gotten a lot of uh, hammering and a lot of even my own supporters said, you should be there. And I said, well, if I am, then I'm reinforcing an unfair situation. And as somebody who suffered from some unfairness in the 2011, I can't be party to that. And I said, look, let's have a fair election. Let let all the candidates be at all the debates. And even on the very first one, when Mike and D couldn't turn up, uh, I defended his position because he had prior arrangements. And, you know. Were you surprised that Orti read out a statement on behalf, on his behalf when it came to claims about that Peter Casey had made about his drug, dog grooming costs? I thought Sinead was in bizarre that that would happen. Um, I, I, I don't understand why they would have done that. And a lot of people have said to me since, surely they would have learned, you know, from 2011 not to let those sorts of things happen. But they read out a statement, you know, were there any facts behind it to back it up? Was there any evidence? Was there a set of accounts that showed that? That was pretty bizarre. I think everybody would accept that. Are you sick of talking about 2011 and, and the Tweetgate affair? Obviously, at, at the start of this campaign, there was, I think, every single week, there was a front page in the Sunday Business Post. That was unfortunate. I mean, I... I accepted the apology from RTE to, RTE to me in the High Court into December 2017. People often ask me, <clears throat> where were you, Sean, in the last seven years? And, um, you know, in terms of being out in public life, and I've been very active in business, I've been very active in writing my weekly column, travelling to a different county every week. The reason I haven't been out in public life making, doing interviews, is because... Um, because every conversation, I've turned down hundreds of media interviews over the last number of years, because every single one of them would have been about the 2011 presidential election, and it would have been about Tweetgate. And I felt, you know, mentally that I can't be out discussing or going for public life until I address that issue with RTE. And I have to say, frankly, it wasn't my fault that it took six years. Most people told me, do not take on a national broadcaster, even if you're in right position to get fairness. It's just too big a ta- challenge. And it took me six years, and they were right. It was a huge challenge, but I took it on because that's who I am. And I got to the end of it, and we got the apology. he have learned. I accepted my role in, in it, that I could have performed better. But we learned that, and we moved on. And, you know, people suggest sometimes, am I being resentful? Is this, is this making up for a score? Is this some sort of... It isn't any of that. 
those words are not in my vocabulary. I'm only interested in positivity and optimism and doing my best. We all only get one shot at life, and I want to make the best contribution I can, and I want to be of service. That's that's who I am, and I think there's a cynicism out there, and I think maybe it's because over the years, politics and politicians have broken so many promises, and it's the nature of politics. And I have to come from a view that I'm not a politician. I'm, I, I'm, I'm somebody of youth work, of community, of disability, and of business. But I do understand politics, and I worked in it for a number of years. Um, but I wasn't out in public life for those seven years because I was dealing with that, as well as starting a business, starting a family, and providing for my family, and continuing to do many of the things that I talked about in 2011, which is about supporting a co- sustainable communities with a strong economy based on small and medium-sized companies creating jobs a, a in locations of, that multinationals never can. A lot of the front pages that I mentioned there in the Sunday Business Post came from what has been described as a whistleblower. If you could tell him or her now, would you advise them to stop or keep going? My first response was, where were you for the last six years when I needed you? Um, look, I guess we've seen from, from other whistleblowers that whistleblower, being a whistleblower takes great courage and confidence. Let's let's not say anything else. If you're working with your colleagues and, you, you know, if you are here and your your management team, you know, you're not going to necessarily go to them to complain about something internally. And so, obviously, you know, whistleblowers do a great service to us if if they, in the end, can create change for the better. And so... I don't know. Is that possible in RT? Well, look, you know, RT is a national broadcaster. I have to say, I met the management team two weeks ago and I was impressed with the fact that they had put their hands up and they had learned and they had changed. In truth, many many of the processes that we see in this presidential election uh, debate, these debates in RTE, are based on a whole new set of guidelines that emerged truthfully as a result of 2011. And I think most of the staff around these debates are new and many of them are young and many of them are incredibly professional and enthusiastic and and I think sometimes these negative things that happen I've seen it throughout my life that what we have to do is take the negative learn from it and say what can we do better on the back of that and in fairness you know I accept the apology from RT and I think that they're doing a really good job in this presidential campaign notwithstanding the, the bit of a blip the other night on the Clareborne show and I, I think they're doing a, to me they've shown a very genuine effort to make sure they get this right and you know I can't but acknowledge that and wish them well. Okay, we've actually asked a couple of um, readers um, what questions they would like to uh, put to you. Uh, So we have a couple of them here. Great. What exactly is their ethos on agriculture? Like, how do they intend to improve it? Or do they kind of see it as a long-term project for years to come? What in, say, a few generations' time? Is there going to be an exit of people from the land the way it has been for years and years that the people are leaving slowly and never coming back so what how are they going to try and change that interesting i started my career in agriculture and at the time in 1981 when i went to agricultural college colleges were closing because no young people were coming in to do the courses Um, and uh, in recent years we've seen a huge influx of young people you know wanting to get into the agricultural sector I think agriculture is unique in that traditionally it was a, a lifestyle and now it's very much a business and it's about making sure systems and protocols and, and, and scale is in place I think we need to pr- protect family farms we need to uh, salute the work that farmers do because it's not just about a business it's about manufacturing growing 
adding value to the food that we eat. And it is a massive, massive uh, uh, contributor to our economy in that, that we export so many goods and services. So it needs to be protected. I think firstly, it's about recognizing the unique role and celebrating the role of farming in our life in our in the fabric of our society and communities, but also with the contribution. How it makes can to we our do economy. that? I think once it's about recognizing it, and then it's it's I think as well. What do well, you mean by recognizing? I, I think when you know. In previous, when I was growing up, you know, originally there were very. It wasn't an attractive sector to go back into. It was you were just taking over the family farm and you were stuck in milking cows twice a day or whatever it might be. But now it's about growing food. It's about artisan food. It's about recognizing, you know, nutrition. It's about you know organic farming. It's all of these things, and it's also then part of our whole sort of green image. I, so I think it's about you know rec- whether it's awards, whether it's attendance, whether it's the plowing champion. I think are incredible uh, um, celebration of everything that's good about farming and rural life and it's great to see so many young people and great to see so many young women moving in and and getting involved so I think it's that but it's also then you know working with government to make sure uh, that the right supports are put in place Uh, the the beef and suckler industry has hit dramatically hard this year and I know that there are initiatives in there obviously the dairy farming is doing well but tillage all of these areas are important you know to recognise recognize because these are also small businesses our community that are sustaining those communities and we need to protect them so I think it's about celebrating that and it's about working with government to make sure that there are actual concrete proposals in there and I think we've you know there is a lot of good work being done you mentioned policies um, and and things that can be done um, obviously there's a lot of things you can't do as president um, is but has there been a time in the past seven years that you've missed politics I, I'm I'm very much a, a man of action. I'm very much solution fo- focused. Uh, whether that's in, you know, whether that's helping people who have a business challenge or whatever. So, there's a piece where yes, I'd, I'd like to get stuck into the bigger issues. I really would. I mean, I've. I, I, a number of years ago and I always look at this in my life Sinead if something happens negative I have to find a positive outcome so in my own business uh, that I was involved in smart homes many years ago uh, you know took took a rap like everybody else in the downturn when, when developers couldn't or wouldn't pay us and we lost a lot of money and we had to let go lots of staff like others you know, I turned that in then to spend six years working with Fergal Quinn to change the law for everybody working in the construction sector. And while the while the law took six years to become operational, it became known as the Construction Contracts Act to provide protection for subcontractors working on these big jobs that they'd be guaranteed payment uh, because we saw hundreds of these businesses and thousands of jobs lost that we will never get back truthfully and while the law isn't really strong enough now uh, we had to persevere for six years to get that into operation time change takes time and yes I would love to get involved in more and more issues the last seven years of my life have been creating you know from the last presidential election both mentally and financially and from a family basis, I had to rebuild from scratch. So I left all my businesses in 2011 to run for the presidency. So I had to start from scratch. Now I'm in a position where thankfully I'm secure financially. My family have two beautiful kids, Bobby and Lucy. Bobby's five and Lucy's two. 
all of that is in place now. And now I can look to see what can I do now uh, to contribute more. But I couldn't do that in the last seven years because I was coming back and putting all that structure in place. Yeah, a lot of people, I think that's probably been the main criticism of you from the other candidates and from other people. Where have we seen you? Why haven't we seen you over the past seven years? And I think a lot of that has come from us having two massive societal changes in the last seven years with the eighth referendum and with the same sex referendum. So I don't, I don't want to attack you about why you weren't uh, there for it. But I, I do think that it, it would be a good place to answer some of those questions. I think we, we know you're on record that you mm. voted yes in, in both of them. But where in the spectrum of, say, for the, for the eighth referendum just gone, where in the spectrum of you went into the voting booth and voted yes yourself to wearing a repeal jumper or trying to canvas people in your life? Where did you fall in terms of the politics of it? Well, as I was saying earlier, like every time I would come out uh, to do anything of a public nature, all people wanted to do was, you know, here's the presidential candidate come out. Let's talk about 2011. That wouldn't have served any purpose for the campaigners. And I've said it clearly, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of time, which I don't tweet about and I don't put up on Facebook, in schools and colleges, meeting meeting young people and talking and trying to give them the life skills. I, I, I spent two years writing a life skills program many years ago. I spend a lot of time with young people trying to encourage them, you know, to, to, to be confident and resilient in life. Stepping forward on a platform to put on an appeal jumper. I mean, who who was I in during, during that term. What was I standing for? Was I a politician? Was I just a, a, a Joe Soap, a member of the public? Um, you know, when I was brought into interviews to talk about that, what would they have been talking about 2011? So I've got to, I've had over the last number of years to address my own family situation, my own business situation, to get into position to, to be involved in public life. Being involved in public life you know, whether that's on an election or on other issues, you have to come from a base. Um, I was rebuilding my base from 2011. Did you feel strongly about it in terms of the family conversations we all had or the, or the pub conversations that people had? Were those going on in your life? Did people in your own life mm. turn to you for advice and counsel on, on issues like the same-sex referendum and the, and the, the eighth referendum? I think the same-sex referendum was, was, was clearer. And for me, it's very simple in life. I ruined my life along this, you know, how can you help other people? And how? And fundamentally, that starts with understanding where people are. And and it's also about compassion. Ultimately, uh, we have to be compassionate towards others. I don't judge others no matter what, you know, as long as, as everybody is, is, is getting on with their own life. And, and but uh, the challenge of 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 the uh, the repeal of the eight was one that I I think had to be dealt with compassionately. I remember being when I was a youth worker working with lots of people, and having conversations, you know, with people who had been through abortions, and you know, throw away comments in uh, you know in a pub or uh, about whether it was right or wrong. You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know what experience they have had, what pain they have suffered, what journey they have been on. And so I'm always conscious of language. I say it to young people out there, be careful of your language because you don't know who beside you, uh, you know, who's hearing this, um, that it could affect their, their confidence, their life, what life decisions they have to make or have had made or what challenges they've grown up with. So for me, it's about compassion. And, and I, as a, as a man, I'm, we're blessed to have two beautiful children. We'd just come through a very difficult time with Lucy, who had gone into neonatal and nearly didn't make it. So I'm I'm I'm. I'd come through that. But in, in the end, it's about trusting women. It's about, and now it's about trusting our legislator, less legislators. And so what was impressive about that is is that 
from from a, a point where so few people were active in many of the campaigns in recent years, so many young people were active in that. And I think that was great. And it was done, I think, by and large, very respectively, respectfully. And I, I think it sent a, set a marker now that you know, the change, and this is the truth about what I've witnessed, change seldom comes from the top. From my community background, change most regularly comes from a groundswell, from organised activity and where the people, community-based, bottoms-up activity, I think, and, and we've seen change. And we've seen that recently with the Take Back. And I think it's going to continue and I hope it's going to continue. We've yeah. seen that with the Take Back the City movement. Um, do you agree with what's being done there um, in terms of occupying vacant properties to try and give a message to government that more needs to be done to alleviate the housing crisis? I think if I, if I if I chunk it up to say you know homelessness and the housing crisis is the crisis of our time, I think to direct provision is going to be the Magdalen laundries of our. Just time. to go back to the question yeah. there, do you agree with the take back the city movement? I, I don't know enough about what what they're doing, and I, I have to be careful that as somebody who's seeking an office uh, of the land that, that I wouldn't promote anything that You're would be illegal. You're not in the office yet. No, so but I wouldn't uh, want to promote anything that would be would be illegal uh, uh, or to set a precedent or to set a comment or a comment. But does it send the right message, do you think, to the government I th- I, that I, more I, needs to be done I otherwise think, we we, yeah. can't, we will break the law? I think the, uh, I, uh, we could never condone breaking the law, but I, I think there's, a, there, there's a, a, a very strong case to be made for highlighting homelessness. And I think more and more we're seeing that. But homelessness and the challenge of providing housing is a complex one. I appreciate the government have put together lots of initiatives, but they're just not strong enough and they're just not strong enough focus on it. And we need to put more resources and we need to show much better leadership. And it has to happen urgently now. So I totally respect what all the campaigners are doing in trying to raise it. I think we need to raise it uh, legally. Uh, but we, I, th- I think it is now clear that have we not gone past that issue. time? Obviously, the take back the city. They're le- legitimate pros, uh, protests. Yes, they I agree with the right. Are to vacating the properties once court orders are there? Um, is there? Is it? Are we past the time now of gentle messaging? Well, I think our, our politicians and government have the have the remit to address these issues. I think they're well aware of it now, and I think the protest and highlighting this is important. Um, uh, from a presidential point of view, and what can a president do except support, you know, the very premise that every every child and every family needs a roof over their heads. And I think government gets that now, but I think it needs to act act more swiftly. There's a lot of people who are actually making money from from the crisis, um, not least people who are providing emergency accommodation um, bills going into the millions for people who are running emergency accommodation, um, running hotels, running family hubs, as well as obviously direct provision, which you mentioned yourself there. Mm. Is there, obviously you're coming at it as a businessman, is there a moral problem with making money off these issues? Well, I think, you know, if you think of the, the longer term solution of providing houses, that will be a, a combination, I think, of a public-private relationship, partnership relationship, where some, uh, the local authorities and government will have to build housing directly, social housing. I think the private market will have to respond. And again, market conditions and making sure that we can build these houses at a, at a price that makes it makes it viable, whatever but profitable, make it viable. And then it's about, as you say, people who provide. I mean, the challenge is an intervention if people are staying in hotels, you know, as long as it's value for money. I think that's the, the issue and making sure that that is driven by government to make if sure. If you that were presenting 
presented with an opportunity, would you have taken it as a businessman to provide that accommodation for profit? It's a hypothetical question. It's it's not one that I, I I've been faced with. It's not I'm not involved in housing, um, and uh, it's it's very specific. Uh, but I think with everything else I would do in life, I would like to think that I would achieve it with, with a, with a strong moral compass and not to take advantage of anybody in any situation, including the government. You've talked a lot over the last uh, thirty minutes or so about turning negativities into positivities and, and always having that positive outlook in life. But we've also, in the same uh, conversation, talked a lot about Irish people's cynicism, particularly around presidential candidates. Do mm. you think there's a problem there in terms of trying to get votes from that cynical public with um, the campaign that you're running at the moment? Obviously, we've got polling numbers that you're you're in second place, but way way behind the incumbent. Are you worried? Everybody will tell you that they don't focus on polls. Of course, I'm cognizant of the cognizant of the polls. There's a huge gap, and and you know, um, I'm I'm in second place to an incumbent, somebody who's you know uh, has spent half half a century in public life, and somebody who is uh, is in the office of president currently. You know, I have lots of uh, questions that I will put during the debates to Michael D. Higgins in terms of what I see as his double standards in terms of promising one term and then rowing back with that as soon as, you know, when he's elected, about talking about transparency on one hand, but now telling us that he'd only publish, you know, finances and and accounting um, uh, and audits. Uh, well, f- firstly, you know, no no audit of of these funds for the last four years is shocking. But to come out and say that I'll I'll publish these if you elect me for another seven years, I think is 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 a double standard. Um, I remember back in two thousand and nine when. Um, Michael D. Higgins was president and I remember when Eamon Gilmore was the leader of the, par- of the Labour Party called for the head uh, of the then Cancolia for uh, what was extravagance in foreign travel um, his defence at the time um, the Cancolias was well I don't book that uh, travel or accommodation and um, and now we have uh, Michael D. Higgins saying the very same thing and so I see double standards there uh, and that's something that we'll hopefully address within the various debates I, I would like to think that in all areas of public life, if anybody steps forward, that the first thing we would do is not take a pot shot at them in terms of who do you think you are standing for public office. Rather, we would say, how can we encourage more people from a diverse background to step forward to public life? I think the office of the president should not be the preserve solely of politicians. I think there are people in communities who come from being advocates with those with disabilities, people in our sporting lives, uh, people in communities, uh, people in all walks of life who could contribute to shaping society and being president. I think cynicism doesn't create change. I think what creates change is people wanting to shape the society and coming together and offering themselves. And we need more young people. We need more uh, community leaders. We certainly need more women. And we need people from every walk of life, including those. And my unique background is not just one of business, but it comes from youth work. It comes from disability. It comes from community. It comes from business, certainly. And it comes from being involved in north-south trade body set up under the Good Friday, Friday Agreement. That's a holistic approach. All I can do is seek through this process to put that out there and to let people know that that's my life. It's not a soundbite. I'm not coming with some sort of 
glossy magazine to say, you know, this is what I want to offer the people. I come with my life's experience, my passion, my commitment, and a huge energy and vigor to make change and to turn negatives into positives. Do you think it will take you 18 months to get over this one if you lose it? I'm not looking beyond the 26th of October. And um, but like everything else, you know, there are no in my life, there is no such thing as failure. There's only feedback. And we look, we take the positives uh, and the negatives. We try and, and learn from them. And I look optimistically for the future. Ireland is a great country and it's going to have a great future. And I travel over and back across the world, involved in coaching and mentoring lots of people and involved in helping business. I'm involved in a business, an Irish business that's in the US, uh, a young guy that I mentored. Uh, and he's doing great things in the US. Ireland has a great reputation internationally. I think the biggest challenge for the next seven years will be how we help Ireland and our companies open new markets on the back of Brexit uh, and also how we continue to bring investment in here. Ultimately, I come back to the foundation of why I do most things, making sure that young people stay in education so that they can find a job and provide for themselves and their families. And fundamentally, that having been unemployed twice, biggest challenge, I think, is to make sure that we all have meaningful work that provides us with a standard of living to provide for ourselves, our family and the housing that we talked about, but also, most importantly, enables us to contribute to the world that we live in and to make our impact. At the end of the day, for me, it's not about making money. It's about making a difference. OK, thank you very much, Sean Gallagher. You are very welcome. I'm joined in studio by Ronan Duffy, who was listening to that Sean Gallagher interview. Was there anything there that we'll lose him votes, we'll get him votes? Well, I think we've seen from that is that his pitch that he had seven years ago, it's still there, but he's kind of finessed it a little bit. I think he's still, seven years ago, he talked about being the jobs president. That's kind of what he was all about. He's still about the jobs. He still talks a lot about how he wants to, how important his SMEs are around the country and how what he's done is about fostering that. But he's kind of changed that a little bit to be, I think he literally said at one point in the, in, in the interview that it's not all about money. It's about creating, you know, opportunities for people around the country. And he brought his own disability into that. So he still feel like he's kind of, He's important. His jobs are important to him, but he wants to change that into it. It's more of a holistic approach to jobs. Yeah. So a, a lot of the jobs that he talked about creating were for people with disabilities, and he talked about his own disability quite a lot in that interview. Yeah. I mean, I, I was aware of his visual impairment and had some kind of idea. It was about congenital cataracts, but personally, I'd never hear him speaking before about how it affected him as a child, and he kind of went into some good detail about and about that and. Perhaps he was trying to show his work ethic because he seemed to be suggesting that when he was a, when he was a child in school he had to work harder. So I do think that is something that um, perhaps he's brought to the forefront a bit more than he has seven years ago. Um, I feel people were perhaps aware of it, but I think he wants it to be more of a of a central point to his campaign this time around. I think as opposed to you know not ignoring his disability but proving that he you know it's not restrained by it he wants to actually promote you know people with disabilities and say and say look listen this is what you can achieve. Yeah, obviously you can't interview Sean Gallagher without bringing up 2011, without yeah. bringing up Tweetgate. Um, but he had some new criticism for RT around the debate, the Clare Byrne Live debate, bringing in the statement um, yeah, yeah. from Michael T. Higgins when he didn't turn up. He was he was qu- uh, quite forthright about that. And he actually, um, he compared it to, to, to seven years ago to say kind of, I've almost said it was a similar mistake. Um, 
one thing about Sean Gallagher as well is, you know, he, he, he gave out a lot during the interview, not not so much gave out, but he talked a lot during the interview about how everyone wants to talk about Tweetgate all the time, but he does seem to talk about it a fair bit as well. Um, and he also kind of used that as a bit of, uh, of an excuse or reason, whatever way you want to you wanna, uh, splice it. But he said it's a reason why he wasn't so active in the last seven years, specifically over the, the referendum campaigns that, that, you know, people would have only wanted to talk about Tweetgate and who am I to kind of wear a repeal jumper, as he said at some point. And uh, whether or not people like, see that as an acceptable kind of reason, I, I think that's for up to people to decide because it's certainly a question that he has had to address. Where has he been for the last seven years? Do you think he'll be able to close that gap now between himself and Michael D. Higgins? I find it very difficult of all the candidates to actually predict and to feel what he wants in the campaign because, you know, he came second seven years ago, you know, and he perhaps, you know, perhaps feels a bit stung by what happened and that's understandable. But it's it's hard to know exactly what he can achieve from this campaign that is going to, you know, mend the hurt from seven years ago. I mean, only recently he got that apology from RT and perhaps... I'm not sure if that should have been the end of it, but if he gets something from this campaign that's going to help him move forward, that's only a question I think he can answer. Great. Thanks very much, Ronan. Thank you for listening to The Candidate with me, Sinead O'Carroll and Ronan Duffy. This episode was produced by Aoife Barry, co-produced and edited by Nikki Ryan. Thanks to the entire team at thejournal.ie and acting editor Christine Bohan. Thanks also to DIT Angel Street for the use of its recording studio. And for this episode, Headstuff. Music you've heard is by Incompetech. You can find all other episodes of The Candidate on soundcloud.com forward slash the underscore candidate. Happy voting.